Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realised that she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'You are responsible for my suffering. "'I put my slave in your arms, "'and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, "'she has treated me with contempt. "'May the, jo- the Lord judge between you, me and you.'" Abram replied to Sarai, "'Here, your slave is in your hands. "'Do whatever you want with her.'" Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. In chapter 17... When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, my covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring without their generations, sorry, throughout their generations, as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant, which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you at eight days old is to be circumcised. This includes a slave born in your house and one purchased with money from any foreigner. The one who is not your offspring, a slave born in your house, as well as one purchased with money, must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, No, 
your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. Then Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves born in his house or purchased with his money, every male among the members of Abraham's household. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that same day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his household, both slaves born in his house and those purchased with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Well, good to see you along. Uh, tonight, if we don't know each other, my name's Ross. I'm part of the team here at Chinali, and, uh, and it's good to see you on uh, a night like tonight. And uh, tonight, uh, we've got lots to get through, so I'm just going to jump uh, straight in. I don't know about you, but I've had a, a really good day today. Started early, 8 o'clock game for Rosie down uh, at Glen McGrath Oval. They didn't win, but they had fun. We had a birthday party afterwards. I got a haircut. It's a good day, you know, one of those days. So I was happy with my day. But if I'm honest with you, uh, not every day is like that. Some days are good, some days are hard. We know that uh, about life, don't we? I'm sure you're the same. You have good days and you have hard days. We have good things in life and we have hard things in life. And uh, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've realised one of the hardest things about life is not so much the hard things that I have, but the good things that I don't have. Often one of the hardest things about life is what's missing. Do you ever find that? It's the things that we don't have that often keeps us uh, up at night. The things that we long for, that we desperately seek after, but they just don't come. It can be things like uh, a job. It can be things like a family. It can be things like a marriage partner. It can be financial security, could be good health. Many of us, at different points in our life, have longed for something good and realised it's missing. That's a really hard thing, isn't it? That's a feeling that troubles us and doesn't go away. Do you know that feeling? Do you know someone who knows that feeling? Well, that's exactly the situation we find as we come to Genesis 16 to 18. In Genesis 16 all the way through to 18, 15, we find people who are wrestling with an idea. What do we do when life doesn't go to plan? That's what these verses are all about. And almost these verses are like a what not to do. In these verses, we just find our heroes, Abram and Sarai, and they totally and utterly 
and spectacularly fail. Absolutely what happens uh, in this story. We watch them fail. We have a bird's eye view from the crowd, seeing what not to do. It's almost like, I'll take you back in time when you're a young person and you're sitting uh, at the RMS, probably wasn't called the RMS when you were a young person, don't worry it wasn't for me either, and, uh, and you're about to do your driving test, but there's someone else who's gone before you and they failed and you're sitting there and you're listening in and they're going blow by blow, you did this, you should have done that, you did this, you should have done that and you're like, okay, I know what not to do. That's exactly what Genesis 16 uh, to 1815 is doing for us. In some ways, we should take this passage in, in kind of two ways. On one hand, it's a great comfort in a sort of weird way. It's a great comfort because here we have two heroes of the faith, Abram and Sarai, yet they fail in one of the worst ways possible. We all sin and we all fail. It's a comfort on one hand. On the other hand, though, there's a challenge for us, isn't there? As we look at this, we're reminded that we need to keep on living Jesus' way and not go the ways of the world. And so, as we read these verses, as we look at these chapters, we're trying to think, what do we do when life doesn't go to plan? And to help us move through uh, these chapters... We're going to use three words tonight, three R words. Reflex, result, response. And those three R words, if you're someone who takes notes, might be helpful for you. They're going to help us dissect what we see here in their failure to help us live differently in the world that we live in today. So let's jump in. Let's think about reflex. And let me put it up with you as clear as I can right at the start. What I want to show you now is how the human heart works. And I want to do that so that you know yourself better with the goal that if you know how you naturally might function in a not good way, in a defective way, you're able to live differently and get things right, more like Jesus. That's kind of what I'm trying to do here. So what is the reflex? Well, uh, jump in. If you've got your Bibles there, if you closed them, make sure you're open at chapter uh, 16, And we'll have a look at what we see in Abram to Sarai. Go back one slide for me. Uh, So here we find Abram and Sarai. And what we find in the situation that they're in is that something is missing. Ten years has passed since chapter 15. That's ten more years of waiting. Remember, God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But still, they don't have an heir. They still don't have an heir. And this time, where in 15, we were hearing this side of the story from Abram, here we get it from Sarah's perspective. And in these opening verses, you hear her pain, I think, so clearly on display. You hear her pain, her grief, her fear, her disappointment, her disillusionment, her sense of failure. Here's a woman who would have thought that her whole purpose was to have a child. That's how she probably viewed herself. But she couldn't do it. And man, it hurts. It absolutely hurts. And so what does she do? 
What does this woman do? Well, she realises there's an alternative. You see, everyone else around her, when this happens, they do something. Usually, they find a suitable person in their big, wide view of family, which would have included slaves, and they use that person as a surrogate. That was the way of the world back then. So much so that often in marriage contracts, they would write that in. If you can't bear me a child, I'll find another way through this or that slave. So Sarai thinks, well, God's not helping me. She thinks, in fact, God's totally given up on me. God's never going to do what he said. So I should try and find an answer elsewhere. So she goes to her husband and she says, go with the slave. Take the slave. That way we can get what we wanted. This is the sin reflex. It's where we have a deep longing for something. Time passes and that thing doesn't come. And then there's an alternative. What's fascinating uh, in the book of Genesis is the way that Egypt is almost always the alternative. People call it the Egypt option. You see it back in chapter 12, uh, when things go wrong for Abram, he runs to Egypt. Egypt represents an alternative to finding the good life outside of God. Egypt represents a shortcut to blessing when God doesn't seem like he's following through. And did you notice that little detail right at the start of verse 1? Notice where uh, Hagar is from. She's the Egyptian slave. We're meant to read that and go, "Uh uh-oh. Instantly we see them taking a shortcut. God's not working out. Let's find another way. And Abram and Sarah, they're not the last people to ever do this, are they? I'm sure maybe in your life you've felt a situation like this. You've felt a pull when something was missing to take control to use your initiative and maybe solve the problem in a way that you know isn't exactly good in God's eyes. What's also interesting, they're not only the last people to do it, they're not the first people to do that. Really fascinating, and I wish we had more time to do this. This chapter mirrors Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve in such an amazing way. You can quickly have a view of that. A lot of the Hebrew words are exactly the same all the way through this opening chapter. If you've got time during the week, one of your devotionals, go and read Genesis 3 and Genesis 16 side by side. Look at how they connect up. Why is this important? It's important because it's teaching us something about the human heart, the natural reflex that we have to take for ourselves control. See, naturally... Longing plus time plus absence equals one of what I call Satan's shortcuts, a way of fixing the problem ourselves. It's like uh, that moment when you're about to go on holidays, right? You're driving uh, down the south coast. You're looking forward to your trip. You've just got in your head uh, that beautiful moment where you dive into the ocean and that relaxing feeling you get. But really, all you've got in front of you is a giant Sydney traffic jam, right? This is the place that we live, 
And instead of being down the south coast, you're just watching the minutes roll by and eat out of your leave, and you're stuck in a traffic jam. But then you notice some people turn on their little indicator and kind of move out of the lane into that little lane that runs by that you're not meant to drive in, and they just kind of groove along there for a little bit. And then you sit there, and you're kind of drumming your fingers on the steering wheel, and you feel yourself getting kind of hotter. You kind of look at the kids in the back. They're getting gnarly. Like, oh, man. And then kind of give a little sideways glance at the person next to you, and then click. <laughs> you turn on your blinker, and you... And then you're just thinking, I'm going down the coast. I'm taking the shortcut. This will be great. And we know it in uh, other situations. We, we lie on our resume because we're desperate to get a job. And we get it. Or we, uh, we steal money. It's not really stealing. We take money from somewhere they're not meant to take it from to make sure we have what we really want or what the people in our lives really want. Or we feel a sense of weakness and failure, a sense of a lack of power. And so we sleep with someone we know we shouldn't to make ourselves feel good again. Life is full of opportunities to take shortcuts to a life of blessing. That's the way the human heart works. This is the sin reflex. But what happens when we take one of Satan's shortcuts? Well, that's what we see next uh, in our chapter. This is the result. And man, <laughs> it is instantly a disaster. Satan's shortcuts, they're short-term gain for long-term pain. That's how they work. Often what happens is you get what you want straight away. That's often what happens. That's what happens for these guys. Do you notice it there? What happens? Hagar falls pregnant. Ding, tick. That's what they wanted. We wanted air. Now you got one bacon in the oven. Problem solved. But (laughs) that problem might be solved, but now there's a whole bunch more problems, isn't there? Instantly, Hagar treats Sarai with contempt. You can imagine how that would feel if you were Sarai. Imagine the sense of failure she feels then even more so, that her slave is now better than her not, because, not just because she can bear children, but because she thinks she's better as well. It's not just uh, the Hagar-Sarah relationship that goes wrong. Instantly there's an issue between Sarai and Abram. He slept with another woman. He's broken that marriage relationship. And then Abram, what does he do? He relinquishes leadership of his family and he kind of leads his wife into sin. And then his wife mistreats Hagar and Hagar runs away. It's like, (laughs) geez, it's a huge mess. But that mess is not just contained there. And this is always the way with Satan's shortcuts. They're never contained. Can't contain them. No, the problem just spills out. The rest of the book of Genesis, we see this issue between Ishmael and Isaac, between these two families. And you know when that issue stopped? Never. We see this issue playing out right now on the other side of the world, in the Middle East. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent, countless lives lost because of that little decision then. Satan's shortcuts always have collateral damage. They spill out. 
in a really painful and brutal way. It's like the moment when you click on your blinker and get in the line. You cruise down until you see a set of lights behind you and all of a sudden you're pulled over by the police and you get the fine. But it's not just the fine. You look up in your rear vision mirror and there are your kids sitting in the back. And you think, what kind of example did I just set for them? What have I taught their little hearts about what's good and not good? What have I taught them about what kind of people they should be? See, sometimes we ourselves might get away with what we've done, but someone always gets hurt. Usually, it's the people who are the most clearly victims in the situation. Someone always suffers from Satan's shortcuts. It's like when you do lie in your resume and you get the job, but then you're horribly unqualified for what you have achieved, and it all goes pear-shaped. Or you take the money from somewhere you shouldn't, you borrow it, you get the thing that you wanted, and it totally doesn't live up to your expectations or your hopes or your dreams. Or you sleep with that person to make yourself feel good, but (laughs) you make a whole lot of other people feel really, really bad. Satan's shortcuts are short-term gain, long-term pain. The result is always a disaster. There's a little warning there for us, isn't there? Be careful. They never, ever give what they promise. But that makes us wonder, well, what kind of response will God have? How will God respond? This is God's people, the one that he has bound himself to. What will he do? And I love God's response here. Here we see that God's response is grace upon grace. But that grace always demands a response from us. Flick back uh, one more slide for me. Sorry if I'm a bit off my notes. I'm doing my best, but I often just go on random uh, shoots. What we see here is God's grace. Firstly, to Hagar. And I love this part of the story. So what happens in verse 7 is that Hagar runs away. She's sick of being mistreated. Sarah is doing the wrong thing, so she flees into the wilderness. That is a very dangerous thing for anyone to do, let alone a pregnant woman. And for many people, knowing the situation, they probably think, let's just let her go. That's actually the best way of solving this really messy scenario. Just let her go. That's not what God does. No, God goes after her and he speaks to her and he makes promises to her. Promises to give this little boy a whole family. It's this remarkable moment. She has no reason for God to do any of that, but God does it. And I love the way that she describes uh, God. Have a look uh, with me. Verse 12, I think it is. Uh, Sorry, verse 11. Uh, No, wait, I'll get there eventually. Verse 13. Uh, In this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? The one who sees me. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing God? He's the one who sees us. Throughout the whole story, neither Abram or Sarai ever use her name. 
Do you notice that? Never once. She's always just the slave. But God, at the first opportunity, he calls her Hagar because he sees her and he loves her and he cares for her despite her failure. That's the heart of God, isn't it? God goes after us. God goes after those who do the wrong thing. He has a heart for the weak, the oppressed, the poor, the mistreated. This is the God who sees people and acts in grace. But his grace doesn't just go to Hagar, it goes to Abram and Sarai. But they have to wait. They have to wait 13 years for God's grace to come again to them, but it comes. God once again speaks to them, and this is what chapter 17 is all about. And he speaks to them, and he renews his covenant. And what I love about the story of Genesis is that every time Abram and Sarai doubt, God always responds by renewing his covenant. And what he does is he doesn't just kind of welcome them back in. He welcomes them back in and then gives them more. How amazing is that? Can you imagine doing that with your kids? If they did the wrong thing and you don't just kind of bring them back in and say, look, I know you ran away, I know you did the wrong thing, but here's your dinner. You welcome them back in and you say, I know, here's your dinner, but actually I'm going to order takeaway. What's your favourite thing? I'm going to do that. That's kind of the sentiment. God welcomes them back in and then lavishes more grace upon them. No longer is Abram just going to have a great nation. He's now going to be the father of many nations. No longer is he just going to go into the land and have it for a time. It's now going to be his permanently. Grace upon grace. This is what God is like. But in both cases, Hagar and Abram and Sarai, that grace, it demands, it absolutely demands a response. You see, for both of them, They need to change their attitude and their behaviour. Hagar, she needs to come back to the camp. Abram and Sarai, they need to once again commit themselves to God. This is where the whole circumcision comes in. I'm actually not going to really talk about uh, circumcision much because I think it actually distracts us from the main point. If you want to talk about the place of circumcision in the Bible and now, feel free to talk to me later. But what we see here is grace demands a response. It's like when you're at a concert and it's just an amazing show and you can't help but just stand up and clap and everyone claps at the exact same moment. When you see God's grace, you can't help but respond. And that's what happens in the Gospels as well. You see, Jesus is God and his grace in living form. Have a look at this verse from John chapter 1. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Your greatest sin is no match for God's grace because God's grace goes on and on and on. But that grace demands a response, our trust, our obedience and our repentance. So what have we seen? We've seen the reflex we have in sin to go our own way, to fix our problem. We've seen the result, short-term gain, but always long-term pain. And we've seen that God's response is grace upon grace. And that grace demands a response from us. And so as we think about our own lives and we try to think concretely 
in the everyday, what does this mean for us? We must consider, first and foremost, Jesus. We must look to Jesus literally if we want to think about how we respond in these kind of moments. You see, Jesus is so important for us because what we see in the Gospels is the way Jesus deals with his own temptation. You might remember the story from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is sent out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and then Satan tempts him. He offers him some of his own shortcuts. And what does Jesus do? Well, where Satan continues to say, you can have the world, you can have all these good things, Jesus says no. Instead of taking Satan's shortcuts, he goes to the cross. He does the very thing that he came to do to win back the promises. Jesus doesn't take the shortcut. And that is so important for us. It's important for us as an example on one hand, and that's a good thing, to trust God and not take the shortcut. But it's even more important because of what that achieved for us. By going to the cross, Jesus opens up a way for us to know God and relate to God. You see, we all have that sin reflex in our hearts, but the gospel reminds us that when we trust in Jesus, we get new hearts, we get the Holy Spirit, we get the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Jesus and his faithfulness isn't just a good example. It's the power to live faithfully in the hard moments. Now, it doesn't mean it instantly becomes easy, but now we have a renewed ability to say yes to Jesus and no to sin because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we uh, start to come to a close, I want to give you three really practical things for your everyday lives. The first one is, I want you to consider how you view God. Do you notice that this whole story kicks off because of Sarai's misunderstanding of who God is and his character? How does Sarai see God? She sees him as someone who doesn't want good in her life. She sees him as stingy. She sees him as holding back. She sees him as stopping her from a life of blessing. But that's not the God of the Bible. When we look at Jesus, what do we learn about what God is like? Well, we learn that he is generous, generous to the point of giving up everything he had for us so that we could have life in him. We read that God is not against us. In fact, he is for us. In fact, Romans 8, 28, he is working all things together for the good of us. Brothers and sisters, if in your head right now you are convinced that God is not pulling through for you, if you are convinced that God is out to get you, if you are convinced that God is stingy and holding back, remember that is just Satan whispering in your ear. Do not listen. Look to Jesus. He will show you what God is really like. He's a God full of grace, full of compassion, and he's working good in your life, even if it doesn't feel like it. How do you see God? Number two, let me speak quickly to those people in the room who are feeling like life isn't going to plan. Maybe you're in one of those moments, one of those moments where you're tempted to take a shortcut. If that's you, pump the brakes. Please stop. 
Satan's shortcuts never work out. You may get the thing that you wanted, but there are often terrible consequences that come with it. Satan is the ultimate deceiver. All of his shortcuts are just Ponzi schemes. If that's you, talk to someone about it, please. Please talk to someone before you make that decision. You see, there's another option. There's always another option. You can take Satan's shortcuts, but you can also trust Jesus. Trust him. He knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. If you're in a situation and you can't tell if the decision before you is a good thing that God is offering you, a good way out, or one of Satan's shortcuts, can I encourage you to tell someone about it? Talk to someone. Other people will help you think that through. And if you don't want to talk to someone, that's usually a pretty good clue that it's not a good idea. So talk to someone if you're trying to figure out whether it's good or not good. Lastly, let me speak to the people in the room. And there's lots of people who do this who've taken a shortcut. You've done it in your own life, maybe in a little way. Maybe you did dodge the queue down the south coast to get to Bully Point. Maybe you did that. Maybe you did it in a more serious way. Can I remind you of the truth of the gospel? That God's grace is greater than your greatest sin. That there is grace upon grace upon grace all the way through to eternity. Now, that doesn't wipe away the consequences, but it does give us freedom. It gives us life and it gives us an opportunity to make a change. But you have to repent. You have to come back to the Lord. You have to say sorry. And then you'll find freedom like never before. So what do we do when we hit one of those moments in our life? What do we do when life doesn't go to plan? We must remember that Satan's shortcuts never work. We must trust Jesus instead, even if we have no idea why he's doing what he's doing. I'm going to close there. Uh, In a moment, we're going to sing. And after that, I've asked uh, Beck Lee to come and share some personal reflections on this passage. There's actually a lot of difficult, challenging, hard things. And so Beck's going to come and share uh, from her experience uh, how this passage uh, is at work. I hope that's a a blessing to you. And if you don't have any more questions or want to talk to anyone about uh, this passage tonight, please come and find me uh, after church.